So, so last week, if you were with us, uh, we talked about, um, among other things, one of the things that we that I described was the difference between being a church member versus a church ember. And we are a church not gonna, that's not going to settle uh, looking for members. We want to be a part of a movement that is spread by embers. Moving forward, we need embers. Bay Marin right now is <clears throat> like a lot of churches, you know, we're kind of looking at what does the future hold? Well, I, I don't know what the future holds, but I know that the Spirit desires to blow embers of God's mercy and goodness into this community around us, and we want to be those embers. We need people to catch fire and who are then able to catch others on fire blown by the winds of the Spirit. Um, apprentices of Jesus. The Bible calls them disciples or followers of Jesus. Apprentices of Jesus are embers spreading the goodness of God's kingdom everywhere we land. So that's a, kind of an overview of um, also kind of a, to help us kind of frame some things of where we're going today. Before we look at the text, um, this is where I want you to uh, get ready on the chat feature. Uh, we're going to do a simple <clears throat> um, answer A or B. I've got three questions, uh, and you can just answer A or B uh, to which kind of best describes you. All right. The first question, which motto best describes you? A, no risk, no reward, or B, better safe than sorry which motto best describes you all right no risk no reward we got a few of you we got some other play it safe um we are right now in the chat feature spelling abba that's great i don't <laughs> that's uh, um we got a lot of risk takers out there <clears throat> Um, Kate is both A and B. Um, in other words, she's not willing to risk saying she's fully a risk taker. That's what, <laughs> that's what that means. Um, so we got, uh, yeah, yeah. Some of us are definitely on the better safe than sorry. I, I, I kind of thought I'm more of the B in this. I'm a I'm I'm kind of the better safe than sorry, and so I asked Beth what she thought, and that would be interesting. Ask someone who knows you really well. What do you think? Am I a, am I a, a no risk, no reward, or better safe than sorry? And Beth thinks I am a better safe than sorry. So uh, question number two. All right, would you rather go on an adventure, which is A? or take a nap, which is B. <laughs> Would you rather A, go on an adventure, or B, take a nap? Some of you want to sleep while on an adventure, apparently. Um, or maybe you think of a nap as being adventurous. <laughs> that could be the case, I don't know. Um, depends on the time of day, mostly A. If I had to guess, I bet we got a lot of people that get out and, and do, do a lot of adventurous things. That would be my guess here. 
Uh, this afternoon, chances are pretty good I'm going to take a nap. If you would rather take a nap, I would love it if you could hold off on that for another 30 minutes, okay? If you need to stand up, go ahead and do that. Um, imagine you're on an adventure. All right, third question. And this is uh, just kind of what you think um, Marin's perception of Christians. A, do you believe that Marin's perception of Christians is that Christians live life to the fullest or that Christians play it safe? Hmm. A lot of B, a lot of play it safe. Yeah, that would be my guess. That would be my guess. Um, Christians, you know, we when we think of, um, oh, we have somebody that says neither. Thank you for throwing everything off here. <laughs> Thank you, Christine. <laughs> um, you know, of those two, um, even can we acknowledge that sometimes when we think of, I want to live by faith, we hope that faith is going to be this safe little bubble that we can find ourselves in. Um, or do we think of faith as really stepping out and putting ourselves in a risky situation? Maybe faith is the first step towards an adventure of some kind. So I want to, we'll keep that in mind. We're going to talk a lot about uh, what the Bible has to say about risk and what the Bible has to say about playing it safe. Uh, I want to tell you a story that took place I'd say Callie was maybe, my, my daughter was, I don't know, four or five at the time. But uh, we lived in Tampa, and we went to, uh, I believe it was a birthday party. It was at a, a swimming pool at a condo complex. A whole bunch of us were there. Um, and uh, it was a, I just remember it was a hot day, and everybody was more than happy to be in the pool. A uh, bunch of friends there. Callie, well, both of my kids, but especially Callie, loved being in the water. Now, at this point in her life, she was yet to learn how to swim, but she wore floaties on her arms, and with her floaties, she was fearless. Leaping from the edge of the pool, big splash, she'd doggy paddle over to the ladder, climb up, step up to the edge of the pool, jump in just over and over and over. She loved jumping into the pool. Um, well, at one point in this party, Beth and I called her over. I don't know. It might have been when we cut the birthday cake or something. I don't know. But uh, she was eager to get back into uh, the water. She was very perturbed that we had called her out of the pool. And so after a, a few minutes um, and her begging, hey, can I get back in the water? We say yes. And so Callie sprints over to jump in and join them. Big splash. But this time when she surfaced, her eyes were wide open with fear because she forgot to put her floaties back on. So I'm going to press pause on that story. And it's not like a cliffhanger. You, you know uh, Callie. <laughs> so you're not like, oh my, what happened? I think we all know uh, everything's okay. But I'm going to come back to that story in just a minute. In Matthew 25, if you got a Bible nearby or if you got a, an app on your phone that you can use, 
Beginning in verse 14, we read a, a fascinating story that's told by Jesus. It's a, it's a parable. And so it's a story that he tells to, to prove a point. And there'd be some ways that we could misinterpret really what the point of this story is. It, it helps us to see how Matthew, the author of this gospel, who includes Jesus' story, he includes this story as one of four stories that teach us how we are to live while waiting for the return of Christ. The Bible prophesied with incredible accuracy the first coming of Christ, his birth. After 33 years here on earth, after discipling a small band of ragtag followers, after his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, after all that, Jesus appeared to a few hundred people over the course of a few weeks, and just before he ascended to heaven, Jesus promised that he would return. When? We don't know. So what do we do while we're waiting for him to return? Do we just sit here and wait? Do we live in a way that our primary aim in life is simply to not mess up? That our primary aim is to whatever we do, just don't disappoint God? Do we live like that high schooler who throws a big party while his parents are out of town and hope his parents don't come back sooner than expected? Do we try to have a lot of fun and just hope that we don't get caught doing it? It kind of goes back to that last question that I asked. I wonder what people think about when they think of Christians. Are we playing it safe? Are we open for an adventure? The main point of the parable, and this is kind of as I've studied it and pulled in several resources, commentaries, and studies, the main point of the parable is this is a story that we um, that is about what we do while we wait for his return. It's a story that tells us what we are to do right now, like this afternoon and this coming week. So let's get familiar with the story. Um, I'm going to put a few things in cultural context for you, and then we'll make an application for how we are to live this week. Um, in your Bible, it may have the heading, The Parable of the Talents. Uh, depending on what translation you use, the story talks about a master who gave his servants um, a certain number of talents. And by talent, it was um, what is meant by a talent in that day and age, a talent was the equivalent of 15 years of pay for a day laborer. So it was, it was a monetary value. And it was a pretty large sum of money, not that a day laborer made a whole lot of money each day, but you add that up over 15 years. And the master uh, hands off to his servants a very large sum of money. Now I'm going to read from the New International Version and it translates talent as a bag of gold. So that kind of helps us um, think through this and, and kind of grasp the magnitude of it. So uh, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, and let me uh, copy and paste this and put it in the chat in case you want to follow along in that way. All right. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey. So, like I said, this is one of several stories. So he's saying, again, it will be, in other words, our time here on earth 
while we're waiting for Jesus to return, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. Now think about that. Do the math. Five bags, each containing 15 years of wages for a day laborer. Quite a bit. So more than a lifetime of, of savings for some people, more than a lifetime of making money right there. He gave that to one of the servants. To another servant, he gave two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then the master went on this journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Um, that word entrusted um, in uh, verse 14, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. What this means is uh, to empower. The master empowered them with a gift. In other words, he didn't just hand it to them for safekeeping. He empowered them with this. He didn't say, just put this in your pocket. I am giving you power over what I have entrusted to you. What God gives you is not merely a gift, but God also gives you the power to use that gift. He blesses you with empowerment. So on the part of the servant, we see that this is empowering. But think about this, on the part of the master, think about how very generous and humble he is. The master is saying, um, probably thinking, I, I know exactly what could be done with this, but I'm going to empower you to make the most of this. And then the other thing that stands out to me in these first few verses of the story is the master doesn't really give a lot of instructions. Do you notice that? He gives them each a lot of money, and then we read that the master went away. That's it. He hands them this gift. He hands them all of this. And then he turns around and walks away. He didn't say what he wanted them to do with the money. Um, the master didn't say when he was coming back. So let me kind of put this plainly. The master in this parable is Jesus. He generously gives us life. It is through him that we receive life. It is a free gift that he offers to us. We are given this life as a special gift. And also, this parable describes Jesus as the master who is going away. We don't know what time he is going to come back. I was just talking about that. With um, We don't know when he will come back a second time to gather up his family, his faith family. Um, but if you notice that Jesus is a lot like the master in this story because he doesn't always tell us specifically what to do with our lives. He doesn't get real specific with it. I mean, if, you, if you're hearing an audible voice every morning and God clearly telling you what you're supposed to do, I'd like to know what the secret is. But most of my life, I feel like God has given me this new life in him 
but he's kind of given me some space. He kind of pulls back. He's empowered me with this life to do something with it. So in this story, by going away, he gave the servants space. Space to do what? He gave them space to take the lead, to think creatively, to grow, to take chances, and to flourish. And that's very important, although we, we may wish at times that God would just tell us what to do and how it's going to all turn out. But I think that given space is more valuable than what we realize. So let me go back to the story with my daughter. So she has jumped into the pool and she has realized um, what Beth and I realized, who were, we weren't in the pool at the time, uh, that she forgot her floaties, but also just a very few short feet in front of her in the pool was Eric, a good friend of ours who is there for the party. In fact, it was at their uh, condo complex. And um, Eric, he's a great swimmer. In fact, he was, uh, was probably about the time he was training for a full Ironman. Um, so he's just a, a little bit away. So there wasn't in me this uh, huge panic. I knew Callie was going to be okay. Um, but what I want you to note in this story is that Eric believed in Callie. Eric noticed right away that she jumped in, was in way over her head, did not have her floaties on. And so this is how Eric showed that he believed in Callie and that he loved Callie. Eric showed that by not rushing towards her to rescue her. Instead, he lovingly coaxed Callie towards himself and he even looked over my way and gave me a thumbs up like, I got this, this is gonna be okay. And I trusted Eric, but would Callie trust Eric? As Callie broke the, through the surface of the water, I mean, she's spitting and coughing. She's a little frantic, but with a real reassuring tone, our friend Eric began to tell her to swim towards him. Hey, you got this. Kick your legs, move your arms. He began telling her over and over, you can do this. I'm here, you can do this. By giving Callie space, he showed how much he believed in Callie's ability to swim. And sure enough, she could. She splashed and thrashed her way towards Eric. It, it wasn't pretty, <laughs> but she did it. She actually swam. And the point of this part of the story is that she would have never swam if Eric had not given her the space to do so. Matthew 25, 15, the master empowered them with a great gift. And then the master gave him space to splash and cough and take risks. He gave them space to exercise their faith. He entrusted him with a gift. That was his way of saying, I believe in you. I have given you life, not so that you can become some Stepford wife, not so that you can become a robot. I'm giving you life so that you can live to the fullest. And I'm going to give you space to exercise your faith so that you can do just that. Now, let me summarize what happens next in the story. In verses 19 through 24, after a long time, the master comes back. 
The master says the same thing to each of the first two servants, the one with the five bags of gold who doubled it, and the one with two bags of gold who also doubled it. He says the exact same thing to those two servants. He says, well done. He says, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And the third thing he says is, come and share in your master's happiness. So how do we begin to take more risks? I mean, who wouldn't want to hear, well done? Who wouldn't want to hear, we've been faithful with a few things and God believes that he's going to give us even more. And my goodness, is there anything greater than sharing in this deep happiness and joy with Jesus? So how do we take more risks? Let me be really clear on this part. The takeaway action step for today is not going to be as simple as giving yourself a pep talk every morning. Um, it's not like you have a risk switch that you can choose to turn on. A willingness to step out and risk is not the result of downing the few beers. Okay, we're talking about a completely different type of courage and risk here. This is what I want you to hear. Here is where risk begins. Risk begins with love. You will risk for the people you love. You will risk for the causes that you love. As your love for Jesus deepens, the more likely you will, as it says in this story, at once risk to double the goodness that the master has given you. The master handed them these bags of gold, and it says at once they went out with it to trade up. If we love Jesus, the, the more we love Jesus, the more our natural response is, I'm going to respond at once to make the most of this life, of this goodness that he's given to me. We risk for the people that we love, right? I mean, probably the simplest, starkest example, if my kids are in a house that's on fire, I'm running into that house. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even thinking about the risk. I'm thinking about the people that I love. And I know you're the, you, you do the same thing. Love is the litmus test behind the why of our risk-taking. This passage does not encourage risk-taking simply for the thrill of it. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's not saying dream up something big, sell everything you have and go do it. It's saying pay attention to the loves, to the healthy loves in your life, and let that fuel your risk-taking endeavors. Let me, I want to give you an example of a risk I'm not referring to. And all that's going on is COVID um, cases and hospitalizations are spiking. I am not saying that we as a church are going to risk and begin meeting in person next week indoors without masks, standing shoulder to shoulder while singing and hugging and breathing all over each other. That's not the risk I'm talking about. In fact, I can tell you why that is not the risk that I feel like we as a church are called to. And it goes back to the litmus test I just mentioned. Love. 
I believe to do something like that runs contrary to a love for our neighbors. It runs contrary to a love for those who are in a dangerous place in their life or could be exposed to something that would be dangerous like that. So what might risk look like for you? I've kind of described what it's not, but what, what does risk look like for you? Because again, this story, the master says to the servants, here you go. I've given you all this goodness. And then he just leaves. He didn't give them instructions. So when you get quiet and you reflect on the goodness that God has given you, what might risk look like for you? What is it? Who is it that you love so much that you'd lay it all on the line for? Will you risk showing love even to an enemy? Will you risk showing kindness even to someone who may not be able to reciprocate? Will you risk showing love to someone whom you have power over? Will you risk speaking up, no longer remaining silent in the face of injustice? Will you risk going the extra mile? Will you risk moving? Will you risk staying put? But what's on the other side of taking that risk? <laughs> More and greater opportunities to continue taking risks. The master rewarded the first two servants by giving them more to risk. He didn't say, okay, good, you passed the test, now you can take it easy. It's, it's not like, okay, we're gonna do our best just to get to this stage in life so we can coast. Now, the more we risk and the more we experience his goodness and his generosity and his love, the more we wanna keep that cycle going. We invest our lives while we are here on earth awaiting the return of Jesus, a love for Jesus and for the people Jesus love compels us to show love to and to take risks for. I can't tell you what your risky endeavor is, but I do want to encourage you to grow your love for Jesus and for the people around you. The why for taking risks is a selfless love. With hearts full of love, we are best positioned to respond at once and risk it all for God's kingdom. Now, I wish the story just stopped right there on this high note of love and being blessed for taking risks. But actually, the bulk of the story is really about the master's response to the, to the third servant who played it safe. To those of us who most likely answered B to some of those questions that I asked before. Let me read this, beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 25. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Motivated by fear, motivated by disappointing his master, he hid what was given to him. Continuing in verse 26, his master replied, now this, this is harsh, okay? 
His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Um, in the message translation of the Bible, it reads um, that the master said, that's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously. Verse 28, so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Wow. So let's remember, the third servant is a really good, you would view this person as a very good and responsible person, but who is acting out of fear instead of love. So this, this story is not so much about stewardship and the wise use of our resources as it is about not allowing fear to dominate how we live our lives here and now. Now follow with me on this, okay? We're gonna do a little reading between the lines and imagine what might be going through the minds of each of these three servants. Was the servant, um, was the third servant who played it safe, was he wrong in thinking that God could be disappointed? No. <laughs> Did the first two servants think to themselves, no matter what I do, I can't disappoint God? Well, I, I can't crawl into their brains to answer that, but they are portrayed as wise and trustworthy. Why else would the master have given them large sums of money? But apparently the first two servants did not let the potential of disappointing their master stop them from taking risks. There's no denying that we could make choices that disappoint God. There's no denying that we've probably all done this multiple times just in the last week. But this parable seems to be warning us that the surefire way to disappoint God is to always play it safe. Let me say that again. This parable is warning us that the surefire way to disappoint God is to always play it safe. Could it be that the most dangerous thing you could do is not take risks. So what if? One of the commentaries I read posed an interesting scenario. How would this story have turned out if the first two servants had risked the money but lost it all? What would the master's response have been? I mean, what if we risk everything and we don't get any return? Well, again, this parable is not about doubling money and accumulating wealth. If this parable was mainly about stewardship, then it would be expected that the master would have been upset at the loss. But I believe this parable is about living and taking risks based upon our absolute confidence that God is the God of abundance, not scarcity. As that commentator went on to write, the greatest risk of all, it turns out, 
is not to risk anything, not to care deeply and profoundly enough about anything to invest deeply, to give your heart away and in the process risk everything. The greatest risk of all, it turns out, is to play it safe, to live cautiously and prudently. When we love with our whole heart, we are willing to risk everything. If you are madly in love with someone, your actions will not be described as playing it safe. Playing it safe is a synonym really for, and this isn't a blanket statement, but as we're talking about taking risks out of a love for God, playing it safe could be a synonym for not caring, for not loving passionately, for not investing yourself, for not risking everything for the person you love. The characters of the story, I already said, the master is Jesus. The, the third servant is a good church member. The first two servants, they are embers, not members, embers. You can be a member of a church and hide, or you can be an ember and risk. Do you notice that the third servant knew exactly where he had buried the treasure? He said, here it is. I get the feeling that this servant valued comfort and predictability by burying the gift, by burying the ember, he snuffed out the fire. An ember's greatest impact is when it is blown by the wind to a place not yet touched by fire. Marin needs churches full of embers, not members. I pray for Bay Marin to be a weekly gathering of embers who scatter and are carried by a strong gust of holy wind <clears throat> to the dry places in need of a spark. What if we, instead of having a membership class, what if we had an embership class? <laughs> what if we had an embership class? An embership class that empowers and releases. If membership is about what is required to belong here, embership challenges you to make heaven known everywhere you go. An ember is on the lookout for dry kindling in the world around them, the people and the places for an ember to land and touch and set ablaze with their contagious love for Jesus. Jesus is saying that the most dangerous thing you could do is to do nothing, to play it safe, to hide, to bury yourself as an ember. Do not ride out life's storms by digging holes and burying your most precious assets and gifts. Fear, fear paralyzes and constricts. The master had acted very generously to the third servant but the third servant did not believe in the goodness of his master. What we think about when we think about God has a domino effect on our actions. The third servant's narrative led him to respond in fear and to people please. I was afraid I would disappoint you. The Holmes family is gonna lead us in a song that reminds us of the goodness of the master. We're gonna sing just that. To rewrite a God narrative, we must read the truth about who God is 
and invite the Holy Spirit to rewrite that inner narrative. Jesus said that to see him was to see the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. To rewrite the narrative you have about God, because maybe you think God is just this punitive God, and you have a hard time seeing his goodness and his generosity. If that's the case, to rewrite that narrative, that false narrative you might have about God, devote time reading the gospel accounts of Jesus. And note, were the people afraid of Jesus or were they drawn to him? Why or why not? How did Jesus respond to those who did not live by faith? How did Jesus respond to those who did risk it and live by faith? As we sing this song, I want you to ask yourself, do I really truly believe what this song says about God? And if so, how is it going to change the way I act this week?